For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. My name is Camille Egdorf. This is Bessie Buholtz with Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. Tom Melvin. This is Jim Kludes. Will Flack here, guide, lodge owner, and travel ambassador. Uh, my name is Brian Gregson. I'm a professional photographer and videographer. This is Sean Lawson. Yeah, my name is Carter Lyles. Hi, I'm John Hudgens. Doug McKnight, Bahamas and Honduras program director. These are the voices of the pros at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, and it's their job to make sure that you, the adventurer, get the most out of your fly fishing travel. Even though right now it is summertime and your local stream is probably popping off like crazy, soon enough, that's going to come to an end. Plan your off-season escape with the most dedicated crew in the business. Give us a call here at Yellow Dog or visit us online at yellowdogflyfishing.com. And remember, while there's a lot of ways to get there, there's only one way to do it right. We're also sponsored by the artists and manufacturers at Scott Fly Rods. A couple months back, I spoke with Michigan smallmouth guru, Dave Schultz, about why he trusts and uses Scott fly rods. I'm a blue collar kid, man. I was raised, you know, in, in Metro Detroit and, um, you know, driving a Ford or a Chevy or a Chrysler vehicle was the way of life. You know, all the money kind of trickled down from the automotive industry. So to buy a rod that was made overseas or any product was kind of taboo. You really didn't even see any Toyotas around here 20 years ago. But, you know, I think one of the things that really sets Scott apart is they've been made in the USA from start to finish since 1974. You know, it's 44 years of rod building experience. There's something to be said about that. To get your hands on your future favorite fly rod, visit scottflyrod.com or your local fly shop. When I think of a hand-built American-made fishing tool, I think of Scott Fly Rods. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Drake Cast. We're going to dive right into it. Can I position this yep. a little closer? Mm-hmm. Mind just talking a little bit for me? Well, I will. I'll try to make sense. We're going to be talking right now about steelhead trout. As you just heard from our friend, today we're focusing on a specific species. Now this is a steelhead. You notice it has that pink stripe down its side. Well, it's like a rainbow trout. It would be a rainbow trout if this fish stayed in the stream all its life. Now, the rainbows that come down the rivers, they eat an awful lot. They get very large, and we call them steelhead trout. They go back into the streams to spawn. And to talk about this species, i got to introduce a couple characters. My name is David Kalinowski. I am a destination manager for fly water travel. I focus on Alaska, Kamchatka, and the Pacific Northwest. A lot of that being steelhead country. Correct. And then there's this guy. My name is Drake Raditz. Who has the pleasure of sharing the same name as our great magazine. I'm a fishing guide in Oregon and on the Oregon streams, uh, the ocean, the Columbia River, and uh, steelhead fishing is probably my favorite species to fish for. And I get a fish for him about five months of the year. Drake has this weathered face with ridiculous crow's feet in the corner of his eyes mainly because he's always sporting a huge smile (laughs) and laughing. (laughs) Drake and Dave have known each other for a while. They used to work together, they've always fished together, and now they travel together. I actually met them while on a steelheading trip in Alaska, which is a story we'll get to much later. But to put it mildly, these two guys love steelhead. 
I started fishing when I was, uh, for steelhead, when I was... Again, this is Drake. Probably like 14 or 15 years old. Um, I did a few earlier trips with my dad, but never too great of fishing. We'd go out and fish, but wouldn't catch a lot. Well, I mean, I suppose as a kid growing up on the East Coast, my exposure to steelhead was in like magazines and maybe a random TV show that I saw. And this is Dave. So it always intrigued me to understand more about an ocean-going rainbow trout. But these two guys have much more in common than just their love of steelhead. In this episode of the Drake Cast, we're going to take a look at where these two came from, where they fished for steelhead, how they fished for steelhead, because they have strikingly similar stories, which just accentuates the fact that they now stand on two very different ends of a spectrum. And they each represent a side that's constantly fighting with the other. But I think it's important to look at Drake and Dave because embedded within their lives and their friendship, they might have the answer on how we can protect some of the species we love, regardless of how we catch them. Later on, we'll be joined by another character, steelhead biologist John McMillan, who will address some of the questions that Drake and Dave raise. Along the way, we'll also hear audio from an old TV show hosted by Fred Trost, just to add some texture. Oh, that's a nice one. (laughs) What you're listening to right now is the first chapter of a five-part miniseries that we're doing on Steelhead. Over the coming months, we'll be exploring what our sport's collective love and obsession with this fish is doing to them. We'll hear stories, talk to scientists, get out on the water, visit a remote lodge, all in an effort to better understand steelhead and how we can avoid loving them to death. So let's get back to the boys. Here's Drake. There was something that just hooked me, and there was no one experience. It was just being on this river, Thanksgiving break for school or, you know, Christmas break. I'd go down and fish there. And ever since then, it was just, it drew me in. I always enjoyed fishing and fly fishing. And I always thought steelhead were kind of that unique combination of, you know, ocean fish that comes to a river and and moving water and, you know, kind of just independent, like not a school fish, really kind of unique, you know? That's why I moved west. Then I started being able to explore on my own, had buddies who had vehicles and, you know, we were able to go drift rivers on the Oregon coast. Well, I landed in Bend, Oregon, and so I had the Deschutes River pretty close and met some, you know, people there that liked to fish and, you know, started to just explore the Deschutes. And fished on the Deschutes as well and did a lot of fly fishing as a, you know, youngster, 15 to, you know, 25 years old on the Deschutes River for summer steelhead. You know, when I got to Bend, I didn't really have a lot of money or anything like that. And I remember I hooked my first steelhead, I think on a four weight and, uh, (laughs) trout fishing, like randomly, you know, and just nymph fishing and, you know, huge fish came out of the water and snapped me off in an instant and was like, Oh, that was pretty cool. Take long, did it? Oh boy, I think no, he was and he hit it, he oh, really hit it good. I'll tell you, you let him take it just right, yeah. And so that made me work to buy a seven weight <laughs> and start fishing for those fish. The first one I attempted to purposely catch was on an indicator and a seven weight fly rod, and 
you know, a clicker reel, and, and I lost that fish very instantly <laughs> as well. Um, being an East Coast kid, you know, I knew what that presentation was, and it was just to me at that time, it was a bigger trout that went to the ocean, so I figured I could catch them that way, and I did. Yeah. Caught quite a few that way. When I started steelhead fishing, it was all fly fishing. That's what I did. That's how I grew up doing it. That's what, uh, you know, I, I grew up fishing on the coastal streams for sea run cutthroat and then started going over to the Deschutes and fishing, you know, trout over there and then figured out there was steelhead in there as well. Fished the Deschutes for quite a few years and was fortunate to meet some really cool people, some of which knew the river better than I and were willing to share their experiences with me and yeah, continued the progression of seeing what steelhead would eat and where they would eat it and, you know, how it all worked. And I started fly fishing at a young age and kept doing it until I was about 20, 21 years old. And that's kind of when I really fell in love with steelhead fishing as well. And I knew that fly fishing worked and I could do it, but I knew that there was a better way for me to successfully catch a steelhead every day I went out rather than just going fishing for steelhead every day I went out. I was going to catch a steelhead every day I went out. <laughs> this is where their stories begin to diverge. Yeah, a couple years after, you know, maybe two years fishing the Deschutes, I think I went to the North Umpqua for the first time and you couldn't use indicators there. Based solely upon years of tradition, when you fish the North Umpqua River, you swing flies. Nothing else is allowed. You know, had to figure out how to catch a fish there. And it was highly regulated with, you know, I think at that time even, you couldn't even use a sink tip, I don't think. So, you know, floating line, swung fly, no weights on the fly. That's kind of how I started swinging flies and was lucky enough to show up at the North Umqua and spot a fish off Mott Bridge and, you know, walk down there and I actually caught that fish somehow <laughs> your first trip there uh first trip i ever went to fish the north umqua yeah yeah now fish don't like to expend a lot of energy battling the current if it isn't necessary especially in the winter when their metabolism is lower so they'll be behind obstructions out of the fast moving current and in this cold water steelhead just won't go too far to hit a lure you have to work the lures in close to where they lie if you want to entice them into taking a crack at your lure as Dave gravitated towards the swung fly, Drake went in the opposite direction. So with clients, um, the main technique I'm using is, is gear fishing and it's bobber dogging. Um, we're fishing with bobbers and steel weights by Dave's Tangle Free. And uh, they are drifting downstream on the bottom, hitting the rocks while my bobber is up above them, dragging that weight downstream. Uh, we fish with eggs and beads primarily. What we use for bait here is uh, spawn, treated spawn. What do you do with this with borax? Yeah, Amy? borax. Borax on this. Take a chunk about this size. Hook it so it's through the membrane. That's make a ball, ball out of it. About a number four hook. A little bell sinker on here, and that's how it's rigged. We'll go out and we'll drop it right. There's a hole here, a run. And this is where the steelhead like to lay. So we let it down to the bottom. Just wait for it to tap, tap, tap. Getting it down in front of their face. I don't know. I mean, I wanted to catch fish first. I think, you know, everybody is an angler. They kind of want to catch some fish to get some experience and to understand things. And, you know, I figured real quickly that 
<clears throat> when I went back in the winter on the North Umpqua and, you know, I kind of got into two-handed casting a little bit and I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't really going to have a lot of success with my skill and knowledge level at that point swinging a fly in the winter. So I reverted back to indicator fishing a little bit. If I'm going to take clients fishing on an average day, we're going to hook three to five fish. Uh, we're not going to land all three or five of those, but we're going to hook that many. And I don't, I won't take clients fishing unless I think it's a possibility that we're going to hook at least three. Pull them right towards me if you can. I'm not exclusive to swinging the fly now, but I would prefer to do that if I could. If I'm going to go by myself somewhere to steelhead fish, I'm probably going to swing a fly. You know, I don't necessarily need to catch more steelhead or what have you. I enjoy the challenge of it. I enjoy the casting. I enjoy the presentations. I've learned over the course of time that even with a swung fly and I can put my fly in a spot and I can manipulate that fly to mimic certain things that might be, you know, I kind of think like fishing a sink tip with a sunk fly is kind of like fishing a spinner. You know, it's the same kind of thing. And I can, I can almost, you know, dead drift a swung fly too, if I wanted, or, you know, now I think I have more skills and things. I've kind of just fished enough to be able to put my fly in the right position in the right type of water to get it in front of that fish and what my thoughts are to make that fish eat it. And if they bit flies better than they bit eggs during the winter months, I'd fish flies. You know, <laughs> no doubt about it. That's what I'd fish with. But they bite, they bite gear better and it's easier to keep your gear down in the fish's face the whole time. When I'm gear fishing for winter steelhead, I want my presentation on the bottom the whole time it's out there. And when you're fly fishing, swinging flies specifically, your your presentation is only in the strike zone for a very small section of your swing. When if I'm fishing with a bobber, uh, steel, and some eggs, I can present my drift down through a seam the whole drift, the entire way, as far as I want it to go, you know, I'm upping my percentage of getting bit. This is what I'm doing. But fishing techniques aside, here's where they really diverge. You know, I would rather have a fish that's willing to move to my fly and eat it than me, like, you know, making multiple presentations and putting it on his nose so he has to eat it, you know, like it just... I mean, fish don't have hands, they have mouths. So anything they need to investigate, they need to put their mouth on it, you know. And if you put the fly dead drifted right in front of its nose, he's going to have to move out of the way. He's going to have to put his mouth on it to move it out of the way, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a little different than, you know, if you put the fly above it and it has to go up to eat it. It's the willingness at that point where the fish moved to the fly and you didn't have to, like, move to the fish. And these two anglers, Drake and Dave, they really represent these two camps of steelhead fisher folk that have emerged on opposite sides of the aisle. The two sides both want to catch fish, but they really disagree on how to ethically go about doing so. To further explain this debate, I need to introduce another character. So my name is John McMillan, and 
Right now, I'm a, a fishery scientist, and I work for Trout Unlimited. And my title is I'm the Steelhead Science Director for our Wild Steelhead Initiative. And for much of the past 22 to 23 years, I've worked professionally as a scientist or biologist. Both above and underwater, with cameras and test tubes for science, as well as with a rod for his own pleasure. Studying salmon and habitat and trying to find ways that we can rebuild our populations. And particularly over the last 15 years, I've really shifted my focus from a lot of species and narrowed it down to my favorite, which are, which are steelhead. And here's how John describes the two sides of the argument. I generally have, you know, experienced kind of the same cultural divide among anglers that we seem to be experiencing politically, right? You know, on one hand, I generally feel that you have fly anglers and they would like to consider themselves kind of patient folks who are out there to fish. And it's not just about how many fish you catch or whether you even catch a fish. It's about the experience of being outside. These are the Daves of the world. And about the challenge of getting that one or two grabs on the, on the swing, right, that you really covet. So it's, you know, something to be said about working hard. The reward is really sweet, but it's also, it also can be very infrequent. And I think a lot of times fly fishermen tend to be more involved in things like habitat restoration, maybe even the anti-hatchery kind of advocacy crowd. It's almost like they're a little more left-leaning politically, perhaps. But I think, you know, on the, on the gear side of the conventional side, you know, you have people who still really enjoy the experience. But I think that I do quite often hear they really would like to catch more fish and that if they're going two or three days in a row without getting one, you know, that kind of bothers them. So they like more uh, feedback from the fish. Sound like someone else we've heard from? It does seem that some people require that feedback more often. So I do group them. I kind of say, yeah, the swing guy is over here because the swing guy is literally lucky to get a bite a day, right? And the other folks, using any of those other methods, you're going to hook multiple fish generally in a day. And I just want to add, including fly fishers who drift beads or egg patterns under a bobber. And so I I don't judge by the method. I'm just like, you know, one group enjoys the feedback of catching fish more than the other group. And according to John McMillan, these two camps have been around for a long time. I basically, I was born and raised on the banks of the Washougal River, and I was born in 1971. My dad fly fished, you know, and I fly fished. We ultimately worked it out, but I can say that I was probably in seven or eight fist fights as a little kid, right? I mean, all the way through high school over these types of fishing things, even with my friends, because it can become contentious, right? Drake says that today, this divide is as present as ever. As a gear angler on some of the smaller streams that I fish, I get kind of looked down upon by a lot of the fly anglers. I don't look down on them for doing what they're doing, but I feel like some of the local fly anglers where I live specifically, they definitely don't respect me because I fish gear. And that's not, we're we're all there for the same thing, you know? The stereotypes and disrespect definitely go both ways. The fly guys are all elitists who smoke pipes, and, and gear fishermen are all knuckle draggers who leave garbage, and that one guy only wants a pure wild fish that looks like Marilyn Monroe, and the other guy wants, you know, some hatchery hybrid that looks like, you know, some, some bad animal out of a horror movie. 
there's unarguably a divide between the two groups. But within the two camps, there's an even deeper question. Not what you want from the resource, but how each group is affecting the resource. And right now, the stakes couldn't be higher. Wild steelhead numbers are dropping on just about every river in the Pacific Northwest. So for the rest of this episode, that's what we're going to be focusing on. Wild fish. Not their genetically inferior, hatchery-raised cousins. And here's John rattling off a few more stereotypes to further explain what we're talking about. Your guy's going to fish bait. He's going to kill a lot of fish using bait. He's going to use, you know, a fly guy using beads is going to catch way too many fish and have a huge impact. And on the other hand, the, the guys who are catching these fish are saying, look, you're just jealous, right? Well, I would say that the fly fishermen are jealous that somebody else is catching more fish. Because you can't catch this many darn fish, and we're putting in that effort. And uh, I shouldn't have my ability to catch eight or nine fish in a day restricted just because you want to catch one or fewer. And I don't know if that, if that hits all of the the points, but it seems to be this general consensus is there's debate over who has more impact ultimately, right? And when John says impact, one of the things he's talking about is mortality. What percentage of fish each type of angler accidentally kills when hooking them? And if you ask just about any fly angler this question, they're going to say that a fish that eats a chunk of eggs on a treble hook is much more likely to die than a fish caught on a barbless swung fly. But is that actually true? Back to John. The mortality rates are, are usually pretty variable. Uh, it depends on the species and where they're caught. But general catch and release mortality overall is pretty low. And for steelhead, almost all the studies have found somewhere between 2 to 5% mortality. Let's establish a baseline here by talking about steelhead mortality when caught on a swung fly. Universally, the lowest catch and release mortality occurs with a fly right? A swung fly. And it's usually about half a percent to one and a half percent at most. And uh, so it's really low. And the reason that this mortality is so low is that when steelhead are in fresh water, they're not actively feeding. So when a fish comes and takes a swung fly, it's just biting at it for the heck of it, not trying to actually eat it. Same thing with spinners, which have slightly higher mortality rates than swung flies, but still super low. But with bait, it's not so simple. From, you know, the early 1900s through about mid-2000s, most of the people that were fishing bait were just fishing it like on a dead drift. This method, also known as the chuck and duck. Right. You know, you cast it upstream, you don't have a bobber on, and it goes floating down the river. Now, the highest mortality back then tended to be with bait because the issue with bait is it's being dead drifted down the river and... I presume, I don't know, but my guess is that it smells pretty good. And so the only thing a fish can do to sample something is put it in its mouth, right? It doesn't have hands to pick it up out of the buffet and sniff it and see if it does smell good. So they try and bite it. And the problem with bait is that because it did probably taste good or it felt more natural, they had much more of a tendency to swallow the bait. And because these anglers only had the feel of their line to go off of, they'd often set the hook a long time after the fish had the bait in its mouth, after the hook and eggs had gone down into the fish's stomach. It's a skill that you develop over time to know when the fish is striking soon enough so that you don't let that fish swallow the bait. But overall, bait mortality back then ranged from anywhere from, you know, 3 to 4% up to 7 8 
which is a much higher mortality rate than on the swung fly. But that was then. But all of that has changed recently. And this is just for steelhead because of the tendency of people to use floats. Also known as bobbers, dinks, wagglers, indicators, and idiot orbs. I know we're speaking in broad strokes here, but most steelhead anglers didn't start using floats until pretty recently. While John's father claims that he saw floats in use in Canada as early as the 80s, they didn't really catch on in the lower 48 until the mid-2000s or so. So it looks like mortality on these fish that are caught with floats, be it bait or jigs, looks to be pretty low. While not quite the hyper-low levels of a swung fly, the new bait mortality rate tends to hover in that 2-5 to percentage range, which is much better than the pre-float days. And before we move on, I want John just to provide a quick explainer as to why mortality is so much lower when fishing bait under a float. The tension is immediately there when the fish bites into the bait or the lure, and so that doesn't give it a chance to swallow it. Most of the fish you hook are hooked right in the beak of the nose, right? Or, or if they're using beads, they're hooked on the outside of the jaw. But what about the hooks? Because Drake the bobber drifter, he made this claim. I mean, if you treat fish ethically and you're a sportsman and you don't handle them, you don't, you know, take them out of the water, you don't take pictures with them, it doesn't hurt them. You know, if you use a barbless hook or a barbed hook. And even treble hooks. It doesn't really hurt the fish as long as you take care of them properly. So I posed Drake's claim to John. And do treble hooks versus single hooks, barbed, unbarbed, does that play a role in any of this? Not much, really. Not until you get the trout and smaller fish. Um, the barb definitely makes the you know handling time, as does a treble hook usually. But some of the gear guys that I fish with up here claim that their mortality is lower on a plug with one large treble hook than it is with a single siwash because the treble hook doesn't get swallowed easily. So it gets caught in the mouth before it gets down the throat. So I generally don't think the hook, the biggest factor seem to be water temperature and then traditionally gear type. But as people shift to using floats and other things to suspend the bait, the mortalities appear to be really pretty low. Damn it. Maybe the bait guys aren't as bad as we think they are. Actually, maybe the fly guys are the ones to blame. Because Drake brought up a pretty good point as to the effect that his clients have on each fish they hook and land. With gear angling, I'm encouraging my guys to bring that fish in as quick as possible and using heavy enough gear to do that. When a lot of fly fishermen that I see don't ever put enough pressure on the rod tip, and they're more afraid of losing that one bite, that one fish they got, and not breaking it off. And a lot of those fish are already harmed by the time they land them. When, I know it's not all gear anglers, but my clients, I'm telling them to pull on that thing, and I keep my drags tight. We yank them out of fast water, heavy water, and if we break them off, we're going to go and, you know, get the next one. It's not a big deal when fly anglers that I guide, and I do still guide fly anglers when they're steelhead fishing a lot of times, when they finally get a bite and get that fish, they're so tentative with it that they wear the fish out and it doesn't swim away happily. The argument goes both ways. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I don't know, something to consider. 
There's two other points we need to consider when talking about bait fishing. The first being the effect that cured eggs have on fish other than steelhead. Lots of bait guys put some nasty chemicals on their eggs to one, firm the row up so that it stays on the hook, and two, make it smell better to the fish. But in order to cure these eggs, some people have to use chemicals that are not good for the fish and the environment. I know this is just anecdotal evidence, but when I was guiding in Alaska, I was treating a batch of eggs with fire cure, and I made the mistake of not wearing gloves while doing so. Over the next week, my entire right hand swelled up and every inch of skin peeled off. So they did a study in Oregon. What they did find was that fish juveniles that were exposed to eggs that were cured with certain chemicals, and when those fish ate a lot of those eggs, um, some of them died, right? And the thinking is that it was the chemicals in the eggs. Just imagine putting the chemicals that wrecked my hand into the stomach of a fish that's six inches long. I have a hard time believing that those fish survive with any regularity. Taking a step back from the bait side of things, as John defined earlier on, in one group you've got the swing guys, and then in the other group is everybody else, including anglers who target steelhead on beads and egg flies, which is something we've all done. You gotta start somewhere. John wanted to point out that when bead fishermen are angling, they tend to hook a lot of smolts and other juvenile samonids. He says that when he swings, he'll hook two or three of those small fish a year. But when he's bead fished, he'd get two to four of those juveniles a day. Because the bead is pegged for a steelhead-sized mouth, pretty often the hook will accidentally end up in the fish's eye or the gill, where they're almost sure to perish, especially when hooked in the eye. And when smolts are heading out to the ocean in April and May, beads hook a lot of juvenile fish, damming them before they ever make it to the ocean. And while Drake brings some really reasonable points to the table, he did make one claim that I found very hard to believe. And even though I might fish bait, if I catch, you know, 300 steelhead in a year, I might accidentally hook one of those too deep that is one that I have to release and that swims away harmed. Not that it's dead when you release it, but it's bleeding or something like that. So one in 300 is not, you know, I mean. So of course, this is why we have John the biologist here. I had to ask if there was any possibility that these numbers were correct. You know, statistically, I've never seen a mortality rate that low, not even with myself on a swung fly. But I would caution this, is that just because the fish swims away doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't mean it's going to survive. But, you know, that said, I would imagine guys and gals who get really good at angling can reduce their mortality rates, but that would seem like a, a statistical anomaly to me. It would be really rare. So maybe Drake was being a bit hyperbolic. But his claim leads to another point. Even if his mortality rates are as low as someone swinging a fly, he's just catching many, many more fish. 300 in a season versus maybe 20 for a really competent swing fisherman. And when you catch more, you kill more. That's just in the numbers. We all know that fish can die long after you release them. But what happens when they live? Are they as healthy as if you hadn't caught them? We don't understand exactly what effects catch and release ultimately has on the fish in terms of sublethal effects. And sublethal effects means 
the fish swims away and survives, but it might be impaired in some way. And so it might not reproduce as successfully afterwards. And there was a monitoring program in 2014 in the Ho. The Ho being the Ho River on Washington's Olympic Peninsula, one of the last great wild steelhead runs in the lower 48. The Department of Fish and Wildlife estimates that we hooked and released every steelhead in the entire run on average 1.4 times. So to me, therein lies a real statistical issue for all of us anglers to think about. Cumulatively, we're very effective at catching steelhead. And when we're talking about some of our last best places, how do we learn to regulate ourselves as a group so that we're not catching every fish 1.4 times? And I I think that requires all of us to look at ourselves. It doesn't mean don't come up here and fish. It just means how do we find a way to probably scale back our impact so we're not catching everything so many times. And I don't, I don't have an answer for that. We've talked about on one extreme, people have said we ban people fishing from boats. And when the boat guys hear that, they're like, we want to ban swinging from the bank because you walk through reds. And so the argument doesn't really go anywhere. And there's probably a little, a little merit on both sides, but a lot of just opinion, right? And so when I look at those numbers, though, and I, and I look at our populations up here, which are struggling, is, is how do we balance our effects so that we can ensure that we're not spending all of that capital on the fish right now, right? In other words, our generation of anglers is not catching so many fish that the next generation of anglers is going to suffer from it. While John may not have the answers, he does have some ideas. I don't envision a world where it's all fly fishing only rivers that everybody's stepping and swinging down and smoking cigars. I envision rivers that are all managed slightly differently so that people can have their different experiences but still overlap, right? I mean, it's nice to have an upper north Umpqua where people can swing a fly for fish in the summer. That's an awesome thing. And it's also good to have another place where you've got hatchery steelhead like in the lower Deschutes that people can go catch and they can't fish out of a boat. And then it's also equally great that you can go to Tillamook and fish out of a boat, right? And fish however you want. But in order to even consider developing separate regulations for different rivers and different user groups, we have to start talking to the other side. But I also believe that we all have to acknowledge that we are arguing over diminishing resource and that continued arguments is not going to get us to the place we want to be, right? which is to ensure that we do have some fish to fish for and we still have some wild places left. The bottom line is we're not going to solve any of the problems with fish unless we as anglers come together because there's too few of us politically to have an influence divided. There's, there's a lot of ways to catch fish, and as long as you're ethical about it and support the fishery, then I think, uh, you know, we're all, we're all fighting for the same thing. Fly fishermen, gear fishermen, bait fishermen. We need to come together to support and protect our fisheries. We shouldn't be divided like we are. I think my dad said as a boy, he's like, you know, don't judge a man by the rod that his dad puts in his hand. So go fish with somebody who uses bait. Or if you're a bobber guy, go talk to that hoity-toity two-handed wielder that you see at your favorite run. It might be their favorite run as well. Look at that. Now you have something in common to talk about.
you know, there's no guarantee that if each of us reach out to one or two other anglers a year and fish with them, that we're going to have a better fishery in 10 years. But what we do know is if we don't do that, that the fishery will not improve, right? Because everything we've done so far in terms of being divisive has led us down a path to usually fewer opportunities. And then legislatures eventually getting tired of hearing from both of us, right? Which leads to less money for salmon recovery. So there's no easy solution, but man, it's not an easy fix to a hard problem that's a social issue. And I think it just requires each of us that little bit of due diligence each year, one or two people reaching across party lines. Salmon slash steelhead issue is not a science issue. It's a people issue. Because whether or not we as anglers need the feedback or just enjoy time snap teeing and catching nothing, we're really all out there for the same reason. One of my favorite parts about winter steelhead fishing and or spring steelhead fishing is I get to go to some really neat spots um, to catch these fish. And I get to see places that nobody else gets to see. I get to be out on a boat on a river that nobody else might be floating. And it is, it's special. When a lot of people might have looked at the forecast and looked at the river flows and looked at, you know, the what was going to happen, maybe uh, the river might blow out. But uh, if you go and see, maybe it didn't. Maybe it only rained a half an inch when they predicted two. And you're the only boat there, and you have an amazing day that's right in between a blowout and low water. And, you know, that's the cool thing is, is you never know winter steelhead fishing. So that's it, folks. Actually, we're far from done. This is just episode one of the Steelhead miniseries. For the next chapter, we're going to be staying down in the lower 48, still focusing on Steelhead, where we'll hear a reading and a conversation with one of my favorite writers, Mr. John Larison. After that, we're going to head north to Alaska. So keep your eyes on the feed. Couple thank yous before we head out to our editor, Mr. Josh Mills. Thanks for hooking me up with John McMillan. To our speakers, Dave Kalinowski and Drake Raditz. If you're a fly guy that wants to talk with someone on the other side of the debate, look up Drake at fishwithdrake.com. You're bound to have a good time and learn something. Finally, to John McMillan for dropping several hundred pounds of knowledge on me for this episode. Check out his work via Instagram, at rainforest underscore steel. Each post is a mini biology lesson. Okay, we'll be back soonish. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast. Right now, let's find out what it's like to go steelhead fishing in the winter. You know, you got to be a a true fisherman to want to catch winter steelhead because it the weather is never good. It's usually raining, it's usually cold, it's usually windy. It takes a hardy person to want to go out there and do that. You wouldn't think that there'd be any fishermen who were so enthusiastic about their sport that they'd brave the wind and sleet and snow just to fish. But there are a few. You know, there are fish to be caught in these frigid waters. It's not only exciting sport, but it really is a beautiful time of year as long as you're dressed to enjoy it, especially in the middle of the winter. And that's kind of what drives me is the is knowing that, you know, I might be the only one there today. It's, I'm going to be the guy who gets them, you know. 
In the winter, it's just like walking through Mother Nature's art gallery. And that's, I guess, one side benefit of winter fishing. Not many people get out to these streams to see the wildlife and ice formations. And, of course, that's another benefit, the solitude. <laughs> 